everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. The ACL, it's the Achilles heel of the knee. And I know what you're thinking, hasn't the ACL horse been beaten enough? The answer is no. If you're going to listen to just one comprehensive podcast on how ACL injuries develop, occur, and affect an athlete mentally and physically, this is it. Dr. Tim Hewitt is such an incredible force in the ACL world that his research and publications are some of the most renowned in the field. Hear about recent studies that connect concussions to ACL injuries and ACL injuries to performance mindset. Even if physio isn't your jam, every coach needs to have a leg up with this information. Get it? Here it is, episode 358. Hola, Atleticos de Fuerza. See? Is that... How, athletes of power? <laughs> Hello, athletes of power? I don't know. I Me know. Amo Luke. Nobody knows. E tu es... Tex? Si. <laughs> Tejas. E, Tejas. Tejas. E, uh, Juan. Juan. <laughs> Juan Willebourne. <laughs> and this no, is... No, you don't pronounce a W. Oh, yeah. El Borne. Yeah, because yeah, the, the, the W really throws uh, his, uh, the Mexicans off. Hmm. I did not know that. And now you know, Power Athlete Nation, because this is the hot, spicy start to another episode of the Premier Podcast in Strength and Conditioning. Ing. Ing. I'm not even going to give you the... I'm not giving you the opportunity to get <laughs> ing in there anymore, big guy. Uh, unless you say ing, then we'll give you the first ing, and then second, third ing, and we'll get the three uh, ings. It's a lot of ings going no, on. No, uh, it was my... Uh, my three, my three my amigos, 22, inging? <laughs> my 2020, no ings. Ing. Inc. There we are. Got it. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, a uh, couple updates before we get going on with the show. Number one, um, I guess in May, are we still going to be doing Sipping Brew with the crew? You think yeah. we're, that's, a, that's ongoing? Oh, yeah. Oh, forever? I mean, or we'll just break it to Fridays. Maybe maybe we'll break it off a little bit. But ladies and gentlemen... Well, I think while the quarantine is still mm-hmm. activated... As we record this now, at 6 a.m., Monday through Thursday, we are doing a live Instagram broadcast of uh, mostly shtick and a little bit of fielding, <laughs> uh, fielding your questions that we asked for questions on what do you want to know about us, what do you want to know about our opinions, whether it's training, well, nutrition... We're movies, answering sh- one a day, and yeah. we got hundreds. Yeah, so, so like, we, we can, got a lot of material. We could go for the next few months and maybe it catches on maybe it reduces in frequency who knows uh but instagram power athlete hq 6 a.m and then we're also dumping them on youtube as well so go to our youtube and you can find them there hey listen if you're gonna go in and you're gonna complain about like the audio quality or something we strap up a camera we press record and then we just do what we do best which is light up Shtick. Shtick. Well, I'm kind of interested with our new rig that we got going because we mm-hmm. invested in actually like a killer rig. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm kind of excited to hear like people like, oh, the audio and the video is so much yeah. better than that old janky then shit like, you had. Well, then just like holding a camera. And, uh, you know, don't be confused. Every once in a while, it does pivot over to the morning roast uh, where <laughs> it's just a burn. Burns all around. Mostly I'm a Quoken. Uh, just because he's in the hot seat, I guess. I'm on the right. I'm just on the right side to not be burned, maybe. Well, when you're at home sleeping in, <laughs> when normalcy picks up, and John and I are leading the the roast, 
Uh, you guys think you're going to be able to pull, set that rig up and hit play? Uh, no, way. no, we're just going to do phones. It's going to yeah, be like, no way. Like this, we got it. No way. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm sure, you know, and well, I, I know McQuilkin. He's not going to touch the camera because <laughs> no. the last time he touched anything nice was the Vertec. And what shocked me on the, the, you get the stimulus check, what are you going to buy for the gym? He didn't say he's going to replace the Vertec that he smashed up. Do you know how expensive that Vertec is? It's like a thousand bucks. Stimulus check, pal. <laughs> I was going to call you out, but it's not the morning roast. But guess what? Oh, fuck. Off, bitch. I forgot about that. I was like, <laughs> you broke the Vertec. I forgot about it. You better go bring it up. Dude, I remember we buy, I, I remember when we bought that thing because we were training that kid for the combine. Uh, I was like, this thing's really fucking expensive. It's like a thousand dollars for this piece of crap. It's just like plastic things that break all the time. Um, <laughs> and, and then the best uh, where we really used it was when we took it to the CrossFit Games and we were making lit it up, dude. We, dude, we were not only. I mean, we historically every time we went to the CrossFit Games, we fucking owned mm. that whole vendor village thing yeah. with our Vertec, you know, sets and jets. Oh yeah, just a you bunch know. of carnies. That was my my three year stint as a carny. You know, the problem is, is uh, those you know, uh, just a, a collection of schlubs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And oh, we got dude, the there best was fucking... when, the, when the drunk got like, first off, I get it. You're going to the games. You're probably on vacation. You want, you're you're going to day drink. But like the drunk guys who would come up, but have been crossfitting for like six or seven months in the best shape of their life. But they're, they're a little buzzed. I mean, they weren't totally blacked out or shit faced or anything, but they were buzzed enough and having a good time. I get it. I'm not blaming you. But they would come up thinking they were hot shit and set up. For that big vertical jump, and they would get as high as they could in eighteen just, inches in classic CrossFit nature, and think it was over, and they could just dump the barbell, the proverbial barbell, but they forgot they had the land, and they would just go oh, and they'd hit it and like be looking on the way down and realize halfway down they forgot that they need to keep their feet under them and they'd flat back like oh, yeah. invariably every year yeah, we have yeah. one or two of those dudes. Uh, my personal favorite was uh, seeing our girl Brooke Entz uh, line up. Uh-huh. And, uh, I, you know, I'd like to see what she could do now. I know she's been training and whatnot, but, yeah, she came oh, over. Swatted it like a volleyball serve and oh, broke the damn thing. She did. She's so dang cute, we couldn't yell at her. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, she went up there and almost broke that motherfucker. And then we had uh, Brad Castleberry. Remember him? At yeah, the we, we did. Yeah, he fucking jumped like 40 inches. Yeah, dude. And, and, and uh, He was like, whoa, and he fucking James jumped. Townsend was our other dude who would come in, like, every year, the two years. Yeah, we'd like, see him, he'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm going over 40. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, we're lucky no one tore their ACL. Mm, interesting so, pivot. Like, getting it, like, what, is that deflecting or yeah, being it, topical? It, because remember, we can are you still, trying to Are you trying to subtly bring this thing back? Yeah, because we're, we're talking about we wanted to do ACL or ACL, uh, vert, vertical jump test tomorrow. And now we can't. <laughs> because you broke the vertex. And in our selfish, you selfish in, son in our of a bitch. I'll tell you, you this much. You didn't replace it. The vertical jump is not as good of an assessment as AC, for ACL potential injuries as the other tools that we're providing in our online course <laughs> about ACL injury no, prevention. No, no. Don't do what we're supposed to no, do. No, 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 Let's no, go no. back to what we weren't supposed to do. <laughs> no, our assessments, our assessments begin hole. with a depth drop, and we jump into... <laughs> See what I did there? We jump into uh-huh. tuck jumps, which is a lot of the research. Mm-hmm. Is there a jump to conclusions map? No. That's... Matt, that you jump to different conclusions? It's a tad it's about idea. It's not a bad idea. Maybe it's we should a tad, it's, that. It's a tad about idea. The Glad they invented the pet rock. You made a million dollars. You think the pet, pet rock's a good idea, John? <laughs> I'll tell you what is a good idea. Hit them, Tex. ACL injury prevention course. Mm-hmm. So we provided this to create a common language for the stakeholders mm-hmm. in an athlete's performance. 
you have parents, you have strength coaches, you have sports medicine professionals, and then sport coaches. Mm -hmm. So no matter the stakeholder position which you hold, our aim is to create a common language to protect athletes, in particular the ACL, because as we find out and learn in this podcast episode, it's one of the most devastating injuries for an athlete to get. So we Mm -hmm. are aiming to step in front of it by empowering you through assessment, correction, and then programming, breaking it out so you can add to your either your sport practice in the form of warm-ups if you're a sport coach that are targeting ACL injury prevention or accessory work within your training program that you're providing that specifically target mitigating factors for modifiable risk factors. And I think where it gets sloppy is just each one of those stakeholders probably, like, let's say a perfect world. They, have the, they do have the athlete's best interest at heart, right? But there is just a misalignment of values and communication, and in that gap is, I think, where the risk really lies. Well, I think the risk always will lie, um, and I don't mean ignorance in like a demeaning way, but I just mm-hmm. think that people really lack the education to understand the true magnitude of the problem. That if, um, you know, you become, uh, you know, everything goes downstream, like what you do today is going to become the reality of tomorrow. And by putting these implement or like implementing this training at the right time will prevent that downstream from right. happening. And then you all of a sudden, you know, it, it doesn't become your reality. And as somebody who has torn an ACL and done this dance, you don't want to do this. Uh, if there's uh, a course or there's something or you can implement this training and this puts you know the what is it the ounce of prevention is worth a pound of of uh damn it i fucking forgot that cliche gold um sure uh but that idea of like hey you know what (laughs) (laughs) uh an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of white white claws uh tacos brisket oh i beef ribs what is it Oh, Benjamin Franklin, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of the cure. Yes, yes. So here we are. And, uh, man, um, to be able to put together a course that we know that uh, not only can arm the stakeholder, as you've called them, um, with the knowledge they need so that the, you know, the athlete doesn't necessarily put themselves in these situations. It doesn't become the reality. It just becomes part of their training. Yeah. And then they can just kind of seamlessly slide by this fucking veritable pit of, uh, of, you know, injuries, which, you know, we will get into in the podcast, which I think is great. And I think what also is, uh, underestimated is how easy it is to identify. Oh yeah. And, um, like, even if you're not a coach, uh, and how easy it is, if you, let's say are a sport coach or a strength coach or a sports med professional who has their system, like, listen, I get it. Our systems are kind of like our own proverbial kids where like they, we think they're the best, but it's, it's a, just a subtle modification or addition to, uh, to your system. So if your system were a Honda Civic, it's not like putting a five foot spoiler 25 inches off the hood. Did you, did, did you ever drive a Honda Civic? Like me, what do you mean? Inside? Like, have I driven one? No, I mean, did, did you ever own a Honda Civic? Own a Honda? No. No. I wish I had one of those VTECs. <laughs> but uh, no, it's just, it's just a little just a little decal we're going to slap on there that says Fast and Furious or something. So Nobody knows. No, we're trying to help their athletes. Oh, okay. <laughs> burn. Fast and Furious burn. Yeah, but uh, so academy.powerathletehq.com will get you there. And uh, if, to help, I guess, clarify... 
the significance of how this is affecting sport and athletes, not just in playing time, but longitudinally beyond that. Uh, it, timely to have Dr. Tim Hewitt on. What a coincidence. So what, what's he into now, Tex? Oh, so he's working Mayo Clinic. We oh, yeah. previously spoke with him, episode 104. Mm-hmm. Amazing information. Questionable sound quality. <laughs> You'll probably hear some dumpsters in that one. <laughs> yeah, that was Newport Beach. Boom. Uh, uh, was I on that podcast? 100% because was you I? could hear John whispering to Callie about Denny Kays. Uh, yeah. So it's very subtle, but you can hear it. And it's, it's not not good. But this What, quality, you mean the audio or me uh, whispering to Callie? Both. We don't have to but define these things. You mean we didn't cut that out? Well, I don't know if we had the cut tools. Cut it out. We had the tools. We just didn't do it. Because <laughs> we didn't think anyone was listening. <laughs> but we build upon the information presented by Tim. So he does spend some time reintroducing that, but then gets into what he's into now which is expanding his research to second and third ACL injuries. So fourth. And fourth and beyond, Mm -hmm. and working with high-level athletes all over the world, which is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, So some would call him the Stu McGill McGill of ACLs. ACLs. I call Stu McGill the Tim Hewitt of backs. I like that better. You should... uh, you should text Stu and say, yeah. hey, we were just talking to Tim Hewitt. He says he's getting this thing where, he, where you're the Tim Hewitt of backs or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll hit him on social media. But, but great, great episode again and, yeah. and grateful he was able to make the time. Such a uh, very dynamic, intelligent individual. Yeah. You guys have really outdone yourselves. Good job. You guys are doing great. Yeah, thank you. Hey, good job, buddy. Yeah, good job. What's wrong? <laughs> the roast is coming tomorrow. Join us for another episode of the Premier Podcast, Strength Conditioning. Should we go? So Tim, thanks thanks for taking the time to hop on for uh, round two. Of, My pleasure uh, of the your your time on the premier podcast and strength and conditioning. Ing, ing. Uh, but for our listeners who maybe like heed our advice and haven't gone and listened to the last three hundred of these <laughs> or the first three hundred, can't um, imagine. Well, why don't you go ahead? Let's just lead in with. I'll hand over the mic to you and man, give give the listeners a little background on what what you're into and then i i know we are it's quite topical for the work that we were doing over here on some of the like a course we're, we're launching so i think we're gonna have a pretty fruitful conversation after that so primarily i'm a science nerd so i i got my phd in biophysics and physiology from university of cincinnati college of medicine and then i moved on actually that work was in cardiovascular biophysics and what, what I looked at was single fiber muscle mechanics and, and mutation models of mouse and rabbit and rat hearts and look to see how do you change the power spectrum of a heart. So I, that's where I, I, I've been in power a long, long time, but I started out in cardiovascular power. And basically what we showed in my PhD work is that you could alter myosin isoforms with various interventions, hormonal interventions, power interventions, and then alter the power spectrum of single cardiac fibers. And then I wanted to get into musculoskeletal, very much interested in sports medicine since I was a kid and an athlete, and went to a place uh, in Cincinnati uh, called uh, Cincinnati Sports Medicine at, at Deaconess Hospital. 
and started with a, working with a group of sports medicine surgeons there. And we got very much interested. They had done a study uh, showing the very high risk of ACL injuries in athletes, especially female athletes. It was one of the first studies that demonstrated that female athletes were about six times higher risk of an ACL injury during a sport like soccer than, than males are. And we did some follow-up studies and coming in as a, not only a nerd, but a, a muscle head. Uh, I, I started powerlifting when my dad gave me my first Olympic set at eight years old in my basement. I, I can tell you it's a good thing you guys don't have video of that form because uh, <laughs> we, we did some crazy stuff in the basement as eight and 10 and 12 year olds. So being a long-term powerlifter, you know, we, we looked at this issue and basically started figuring out what are what are sort of the neuromuscular imbalances that put athletes at risk of an ACL injury. And basically, with a whole lot of research and a, and a large team, we, we basic, basically came up with four neuromuscular imbalances, one one that we call ligament dominance, which is relying on your ligaments rather than your muscles to absorb and dissipate force. And obviously, uh, a ligament is designed to hold the joint together, but a, a ligament is not designed to absorb and dissipate force. The muscles are amazing machines at doing that. The ligaments, not so much. So that was the first neuromuscular imbalance we observed. And then we started to look at anterior, posterior. And we, what we showed was athletes that are greater risk tend to be very quad dominant and really lack posterior chain, especially recruitment. So that was a, another part of the profile we saw. And then, then we looked more side to side and what we showed was imbalances on one side versus the other. What, you know, left leg, right leg in, in whatever, whether that's hamstring peak torque or glutes or, or quads, any kind of imbalances increase risk. And finally, we looked at a series of studies with a whole lot of people. This, this was a, a really cool series of studies. We can talk about that more in a bit, but basically trunk dominant athletes, athletes that allow their trunk to move a lot and, and where there's, that's where their center of mass resides. The center of mass moves a lot, which means the ground reaction force is moving relative to the knee joint, which can cause increased torques. So again, coming out of a powerlifting field, what I decided was let's, let's power up and make symmetrical those aspects of an athlete's profile that put them at risk and see if we can actually alter that profile. So this was, I, I hate to date myself, but this is like late nineties work. So we published a series of studies in American Journal of Sports Medicine, first in the laboratory where we showed those form neuromuscular imbalances. For, for example, what we did was plyometrics. We started with low-level plyometrics and moved up with higher-level power movements, especially moving into single-leg plyos. And basically what we showed is we could correct those four imbalances in athletes. We could increase relative hamstring peak torque significantly relative to quad. And so and we, we could balance side to side relative ham quad ratios. We could, and as we were doing that, we could decrease force. We could actually show that using plyometric drills, we could increase peak uh, vertical height 
while decreasing ground reaction forces, which is a great combination. Both are going to, one's going to give you greater performance and the other is going to give you lower risk. So we showed in the laboratory that would work. Then we got out on the field and we, we took kids from several teams of basketball, volleyball, and soccer, and over 1,300 athletes. And we instituted these interventions and we demonstrated, now, believe it or not, this is back in 1999, we published this in the American Journal of Sports Medicine. And we basically showed that you could decrease risk of an, a knee injury and or an ACL injury. In general, you could decrease all injuries by 50%, all knee injuries, and you could reduce the risk of non-contact. And non-contact is important because that means it's not someone taking out your knee joint. It means it's neuromotor control, which we showed we could alter and reduce by two thirds. So this was really good news, actually. And that that hit. Oh, I think since that time, we've had more than a dozen articles in in The New York Times on that on that work. Actually, believe it or not, I think maybe the second publication we had in The New York Times was on the front page of the New York Times on 9-11-2001. Front page of New York Times didn't get a lot of press because <laughs> there was other things going on later that morning. So, so basically that was our, our primary prevention work. So then what we did is we got into screening and we started asking the question first, what if we could screen athletes for these imbalances and figure out if there are athletes at higher risk, lower risk, moderate risk, figure out who those athletes are. And then second, take these targeted interventions that are targeted to that specific athlete's profile and actually reduce risk. And in a series of studies, this is a, a, a great colleague and friend of mine I've been working with for over 20 years, Greg Meyer led this work. And basically what we showed was we could, if you targeted an athlete that had a high risk there, the effect would be greater in that, in those athletes. And you would alter that profile more. So that was the screening work. And then that was the targeted intervention work. So in order to do that, we followed an entire county school system in northern Kentucky. So I'm not only a power lifter lifelong, I'm also a farm boy. So so I had a farm down in Boone County, Kentucky. Boone County is where the Cincinnati uh, airport is. It resides in, in Boone County. My farm was down on the southern end and I I knew and was very connected to a group there that was based out of the, the schools, Bob Mangine was the, the leader of this. He's an athletic trainer, physical therapist, who's now an associate athletic director at the University of Cincinnati. He had many connections. And what was really cool is we were able to do geographic studies where we could screen athletes, we could train athletes using these power interventions, and then we could follow them over time to see who got injured. So it was a great setup, an entire county school system, which I don't think has nothing like that's ever been done before or since. So what we did is followed these athletes out and showed that not only could we 
predict relative risk in an athlete. We could risk stratify them, but we could use targeted interventions and reduce this relative risk. And all these, all these studies are published in American Journal of Sports Medicine, uh, a couple of them in 2018 in Journal of Athletic Training. Basically, we showed school-based power training could reduce the risk of an ACL injury again between half and two thirds, depending on general knee injuries or con non-contact ACL injuries. So in, in lightning, again, we, we found the same thing we, we found 10 years prior to that in our earlier studies. So Mark Paterno, a PhD student of mine, started following up that cohort because once we started having primary ACL injuries, and this is where our current passions reside. We started looking at second ACL injuries. Now, that first ACL injury is really devastating, right? You know, you're, you're out. You know, people say you're back in a few months or six months. It's not the case. Even, even Adrian Peterson's, they, they say he was the miracle case. Adrian Peterson was back from his ACL tear to playing in about nine months. And that's Nine months is about on nine to 12 months is about on average. So you've just lost maybe a C at least a season, maybe a season plus. And, you know, the, the classic case is Derek Rose. So Derek Rose tore his ACL. The bulls were in the playoffs about 14 months after that. And he wasn't back yet. And people started questioning, you know, the, you know, how, what kind of sports town Chicago is. They're like, you know, what's this wimpy dude not doing? And and actually the medical team, I mean, th th this was front page Chicago Tribune. Where is Derek? Where's the medical team? Why is it 14 months later? Why isn't he playing in the playoffs? This guy makes 20 plus million dollars a year. Well, Derek, it, it, the knee just didn't feel right to him, especially, you know, taking off on it. It. And it does take when you when you alter the neuromotor connections. So, for example, this is your ACL. Your ACLs proportional to the size of your pinky. It's about the first two digits there. It's maybe two and a half, three centimeters long. It's that size. Well, it holds the knee joint together. So if this is the knee joint and say this is my fibula, this is the lateral side of the knee. Here's what the ACL does. It keeps the it keeps the tibia from pulling forward relative to the, the femur, but it does more than that too. It also controls varus valgus in turn, and it also controls internal external rotation. So in a nutshell, here's how you tear your ACL. You hit down hard and you go into a valgus position. So medial collapse of the knee joint anterior translation especially of the lateral tibial plateau internal rotation combined pop you pop your acl now again that's why the musculature around the joint that controls where the femur and tibia are relative to one another are crucial but not only that the acl again your pinky is it's actually in the center of the joint it would be here but we're not going to go there it's it, it's here in the it's in the middle of your tibia and it's going it's crossing about 45 degrees in this direction 
and it's holding the joint together along with the posterior cruciate ligament, the lateral collateral, medial collateral ligaments, the four major ligaments in the knee, and it resists this motion. So if you're not using the musculature to control those motions and absorb and dissipate those forces and torques, this little guy, which is extremely strong, by the way. So how strong is a is an ACL? Well, we did the studies in Cincinnati and we showed that to, to pull the tibia and femur apart and to tear that rupture, that ACL, it takes about 1800 newtons of force. Does anyone know how much 1800 newtons is? Well, basically you divide by 4.45 repeating. So basically you've got the acceleration due to gravity, which is 9.8 meters per second. And then you divide by the conversion from kilos to pounds, which is 2.2. So 9.8 divided by 2.2 is 4.45 repeating. And so if you divide that 1800 by 4.45 repeating, what you get is in a range of about 450 pounds. Now, Pete Torzilli and the group at Hospital for Special Surgery did the exact same studies and showed it took 2200 newtons which is no surprise even cadavers are tougher in new york than anywhere else in the world but the, <laughs> but but basically it's about 500 pounds of force and that in that range so when you think about that 500 pounds of force to pull that apart it's it's extremely strong the problem is when you have ground reaction forces so say when derrick rose is landing from a basketball rebound any idea how much force is there. What you're talking about is the player's weight, say Derek weighs 250, whatever. He's probably a little lighter than that, but oh, an, an average amount of force that he's going to land with, say from rebounding a basketball is in a range of say six to eight times body weight. So if you think about that, so that's 2000 pounds of force. So that's four times the force that an ACL can resist. Now, why doesn't someone pop their ACL every time they're landing? Well, it's, it's because they're using their musculature to absorb the force and they're not contracting their musculature in a way that forces the knee joint to do this. They're contracting their musculature in a way that keeps the knee joint solid in this space. No varus valgus, no anterior translation, internal rotation. Now, what, what, muscles do that well locally it's your hamstrings so hamstrings are great muscles i'm a huge hammy advocate because hamstrings insert here and here on the back of the tibia and basically what they do is they not only pull the tibia back relative to the femur which what does that do the acl is resisting that anterior translation so if these are actually pulling back, that's an agonist or a helper of the ACL. It's taking stress off the ACL. But because you have medial and lateral tendons, they also control this and this. So hamstrings are the big helper of the ACL. So what do you do to prevent an ACL tear? What do you do neuromuscularly? Well, first thing you're going to do is power up the hammies. You're going to use strengthening exercises. You're going to use Russian hamstring curls. You're going to use Romanian deadlifts. And then you're going to do a lot of plyos. You're going to start with basic 
power, power plyos, like squat jumps. And then you're going to move into single leg type of plyometric, you know, height jumps, depth jumps, but again, gradual increase in volume and, and difficulty. So hammies are crucial. The other muscle that's crucial to train to prevent an ACL injury are your glutes. Now, why is that? Well, everything is about positioning, as I said, of the tibia relative to the femur. Well, what resides at the end of the femur? Your glute does. And your glute controls in all three dimensions where the proximal tibia is, but that also means by definition, it controls where the distal tibia is. Biggest, strongest, most powerful muscle in your body. And I can tell you, it's amazing how many athletes, especially ACL prone, high risk athletes, underactivate their glute. Now, a big part of this is strength, right? Strength is important. It's, it's important to have big, strong glutes. However, activation is even more important because during most athletic maneuvers, you're well under the threshold of your max power output of your muscle, like a glute. You're, you're usually in the range of 20, 30%. So recruitment, increasing, pushing that recruitment past 20, 30%, increasing that activation and controlling the distal position of that femur relative to the tibia are absolutely crucial. So we did a series of studies demonstrating that you could predict athletes who don't activate their muscles properly and recruit their muscles and put themselves at greater risk. We showed that with plyometrics, with power training, things like Russian hamstring curls, that you could actually reduce the risk of all knee injuries by half, non-contact ACL injuries by two-thirds. And then what we followed up with was what happens after you tear your ACL and go back. So Derek Rose, for example, he's pushed very hard and went back his second or third game back, he landed Taurus meniscus, which is the shock absorber of the knee. So another long layoff, big problem, 20 plus million dollar athlete down for another season. Big problems. So what we're after now is these second injuries and even third injuries, because one ACL injury is completely devastating. Two ACL injuries, it gets into your head. I had at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, so I had a lab there for nearly 20 years. And basically what we showed was, was the impact of that second injury is enormous. For example, you're going to have downstream health consequences. Even after the first ACL injury, we showed in young athletes downstream several years later, they're going to be heavier. They're going to be, you know, and not a, a good heavy, you know, and, and so there, there are a lot of downstream effects, but that second ACL injury is, is really devastating at our lab at children's at one time, we had six people in the lab that had, had had two ACL injuries and reconstructions. Now, that's when it gets in your head and says, man, I got to spend, you know, the rest of my life trying to figure out how to not my, allow myself to have another ACL injury and hopefully help other people not have 
ACL injuries again. So that's where the work has shifted for the last several years, getting at prevention of those follow-up, those secondary, tertiary, quaternary injuries. You know, I can tell you, Shea Ralph, who was one of the greatest basketball players of all time. So she led uh, UConn to four national championships, was their starting point guard. I I was at a surgeon's meeting out in in Utah, and I, I said, you know, Shea Ralph went on to have five ACL tears in reconstruction, and a surgeon in the back stood up and said, no, you went wrong again. And I said, wrong? Never been wrong. Well, you are, because <laughs> because I just reconstructed her sixth ACL. So these are, and, and this is, this is a huge problem, right? So that's where the work has gone. And that's where we can go from there. If you want to get in questions, that's more of the recent stuff, world collaborative stuff. For example, we've been spending a lot of time collaborating down in Oz because Aussie rules football has a, has a huge problem. Because when you look at, I talked about what happens at the knee and how you tear an ACL, this combination of motions, right? Well, what are the things that lead to those sort of combination of motions? Well, as I, as I hinted toward, is when your trunk is, is in three-dimensional space, so your, your center of mass resides at your umbilicus, your belly button more or less, back from there. And... When you land on a single leg and your center of mass moves laterally to your knee joint in landing, what it does, so let's go back to high school physics, it creates a torque. A torque, a force times a distance to the center of rotation. So the center of rotation is your knee joint, okay? Now your center of rotation, your knee joint should be moving this way in flexion extension. If you allow center of rotation here, which it can be, you've got problems because the knee's not designed to go significantly more than a few degrees medial lateral into varus valgus, especially valgus. So what happens is, and this is a series of studies we did with, oh, it was video studies that we did with Barry Bowden and a, a group uh, on the East Coast. And basically what we showed was this trunk dominance problem where you land, you let your trunk move laterally, the ground reaction force from your foot. So the ground reaction force where your foot lands, it hits right where your foot hits, especially if you land flat footed. So that's the other thing. So when you teach kids and athletes to try to prevent an ACL tear, don't land flat-footed. Land on the ball of your foot and use your foot as a rocker because you'll see almost every ACL injury, if not everyone, the foot goes flat. What that means is it's a loud landing, which means it's a high ground reaction force landing. So to generate torque, a force, so the ground reaction force is high, times the distance when you move that center of mass laterally, it increases distance from the ground reaction force vector to the center of the knee joint the media, uh, the very center becomes the center of rotation and you have massive torques that cause this combination and tearing the ACL. Doc, is there a so, component of weight? Um, like I wonder, it's like, um, you know, you were talking about being at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Is there an issue where 
kids are not big or strong enough to tear an ACL. Um, I had my shoulder scoped uh, down at the Andrews place down in uh, December. And as they brought Mm -hmm. me in the next day after surgery, they wheeled in a 10-year-old kid who had just had his ACL reconstructed. And I'm looking at this kid and I'm thinking, there's no way this kid has enough body weight, enough size, enough musculature and strength to even really tear an ACL. I mean, and and so it was kind of a confusing thing to me because I I figured ACLs were something that happened past a certain body weight, maybe a certain age and a certain size for an athlete to just be strong enough to tear an ACL. Yeah, that, that's a great question. And that, that is correct. The more mass you have, so body mass and body mass index are all always follow out in our logistic regression, regression equations as predictors of risk. That's just simple physics too. The, The bigger you are, the more force you generate when you hit, the more force you have at the joint and at the ligament. The issue with kids. So I directed the, the sports medicine biodynamics center at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, like I said, for m- more than a decade. And basically what we showed was over time, the number of ACLs in those pediatric Athletes kept ramping up and up and up and up. Now, why is that? Their risk does increase as they go through puberty. We've we've published several studies. The first one was in 2004 in, in Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery, which showed that as kids grow and they increase their mass, they they actually get more muscle imbalances, but they get more mass, and mass does predict risk. So why do you see ACL injuries now in these young kids? Well, it's, it's a couple of factors. You have to look at the epidemiologic factors. So what increases that? Numbers, the more people you have, and exposure, the more exposure you have to, to injury risk. And that's the problem with the kids. So you've got at, at school level athletes, there's like 3.3 million participating in high risk sports like soccer and basketball and football now that just didn't happen in the past. So there's many more participating, but also that exposure factor. So in injury epidemiology, you have the numerator, which is the number of injuries and you have the denominator, the amount of exposure. Now, as you increase that exposure, you're going to increase the numbers that you see. And that's the problem. In these kids' sports, what you see is more and more and more exposure. Kids playing endless year-round sports with very little uh, break. And the other thing is what's been shown is sports specialization in these kids is a problem. If you play a very high risk sport like just basketball or just soccer, 9, 10, 11, 12 months a year, you're increasing your exposure, but you're also increasing neuromuscular imbalances. So when you practice only one sport month after month, year after year, you're you're creating a skill, right? But you're also creating neuromuscular imbalance because 
It's just like if you look at a tennis player who's always hitting the racket on their right, they actually change not only their musculature, you'll see their their forearm is massive on their on their serving side, but they actually change the bony structure. So so that's also a part of power training. What's needed there is to create balance in an athlete that is at great risk. So little kids who play year round and have a ton of exposure and there's a ton of those kids out there playing have a really high risk. Other end of the spectrum, a pro athlete, pro athletes are some of the most imbalanced athletes in the world because they're some of the most skilled athletes. That's why the training that you guys do is so crucial in that setting to retain balance in a highly skilled, highly specialized athlete is absolutely crucial. That brings me back to, I think it was to Roth's, um, Roth Ruiz, who I think it's his birthday today. Yeah, yeah. it is Ruiz's yeah. birthday. Um, who's John's strength coach. He did, he had a practical at our symposium a couple of years ago. And I think that was his overall message is like, all training should be for athletes is habit and balance. Like it's not strength. It's not power. Like those are things, but it's about patterning habits, habit patterning, and then creating balance. And uh, you could just see people like some of the younger coaches just kind of glossing over. They're like, so, so like, what about sets and reps? <laughs> How many sets does that take? Yeah. Yeah. And then it's like, you know, here's that. And it's just like, hmm, yeah, you, you know, there's a, a, certainly a higher level lens to look at when uh, evaluating the purpose behind the training. Uh, Doc, at 20, I tore my ACL. So um, mm -hmm. when I was in college in my third year, I tore my ACL. And then they did a middle third of the patellar tendon reconstruction. And then mm -hmm. I came back and uh, they pushed me way too fast through the rehab. And I developed like terrible patellar tendonitis. Uh, like it was so bad. On, on, your involved, on your involved leg. On both knees. On Dude. both knees. Yeah. Wow. So I was uh, I was favoring um, just really bad. Like they had stupid stuff. Like we were, you know, winter conditioning and I had tore it at, at the end of the year right around Thanksgiving. Uh, they did the, the ACL and then I had, I was uh, in the CPM crutching, you know, all day and then at uh, crutching to class to try to take finals, which I ended up not doing very well that year because, you know, as you can imagine, I wasn't studying very much. Um, but then they pushed me through into winter conditioning, you know, you should be back from this thing in three months. And I remember the knee just blew up and they, they had us like running stair stadium stairs, no single leg, you know, uh, like, you know, squatting with a vertical shin. I mean, everything wrong that I know to be today was what they prescribed. And I ended up with a terrible tendonitis in the, um, on the, you know, inflicted side, but also on the healthy side. And their, uh, their therapy for that was, uh, uh, iontophoresis. So they would do the dexamethasone patches and then do the iontophoresis. So they did that pretty much every day for about a month. And uh, I ended up a couple years later coming back, everything was fine. And then my rookie year in the NFL, I ended up rupturing, rupturing my patellar tendon on the opposite knee, um, on the, you know, the, what would be the healthy knee. And then had, uh, they stitched that back together, retinaculum, and then I went on to go play, you know, 10 more years. Um, but it was pretty interesting. Somewhere around that time, I'm pretty sure I tore my ACL the second time. Uh, it just so happened the, though. The graft, you tore yeah. the graft. Yeah, I tore the graft. The problem is nobody ever knew because, uh, the thickness of my hamstring and the insertion was so big that even like, if you were to do like the standard check, like an orthopedist go through the check, they couldn't, they can't even tell that my ACL is damaged. And mm -hmm. so it was pretty interesting when I, I, I tore, 
some cartilage and I got scoped. Dr. Stedman scoped me and he came out and he's like, I got good news. The scope went well. Everything's fine. You'll be back really quick. Uh, but I'm going to give you some bad news. You really don't have like you don't have an ACL. But um, I didn't know that until you were under anesthetic. He's like, your hamstrings are some of the thickest I've seen. And he's like, I would just rock it. He's like, I'm not going to cut your knee up and do this. Just like he goes, dude, if you've made it this far and obviously your training is such that it's working, like just go out. And I've never noticed any issues with it. So, so, so you made several great points there. So when you talk about trying to come back and you didn't do well, that's, that's classic. And that's documented in the literature. ACL injury or a major injury like that to a college or, or high school athlete has significant ramifications, psychological ramifications. And my colleague, Kate Webster in Melbourne, Australia, is the, the world expert on this. And I'm actually doing a, a, a podcast with her on Monday. And so we've started working together because I do the biophysical biomechanical physiological side and so does she but she also branches she's a psychologist in the mental aspects and yes we've shown that academic performance suffers significantly often acl injury the other thing about your injury so we recently published a, a paper and and it was just a very consilient similar data out of italy just showed the same thing your risk of a second ACL tear is about twice as high on, on the, the contralateral side. Now, that's not your case, although it's also quite prevalent to tear the, the ACL on the graft side. Now, again, what happens is the reason it's more likely to happen on the contralateral side is people, they, they lose neuromotor control. So what, what happens is not only is the ACL strong, it's also full of nerve fibers. It's somewhere between three and 6% nerve endings. And what there is, is a spinal level afferent efferent feedback loop, which basically says when I, when I do this to my ACL, when I pull the tibia forward, what happens is there's a feedback loop through very rapid less than 150 milliseconds that turns on your hamstring muscle to help pull that tibia back. It's a reflective arc. What happens when you tear this, when you tear your ACL part, it's, it's basically looks like crab meat or like mop ends. And basically, mm, crab meat. Mm. yeah, lovely. So it's all, it's disconnected, right? So it's blown apart. So you have all these highly tuned, highly calibrators all four types of nerve endings in, in an ACL. And basically it's all set up for this spinal level, very rapid feedback loop for the musculature to be activated and protect the ACL. Well, that's gone now. And then what they do is they put this basically hot dog of tissue in there. It's not. So the ACL is actually kind of, Oh, it's beautifully shaped. It has a three dimensional structure. It's it's in three dimensions. It's almost, ribbon shaped and that hot dog of patellar tendon or hamstring or whatever they, and, and I, I don't want to get on a soapbox 
No, please but, get on a soapbox because no. Doc, I, I'm, I no am so, dogs out there. I am so fucking uh, over this thing of like them cutting up. I mean, and th- this was my deal. Like you're going to cut up a perfect. Okay, so the ACL's torn. Now you're going to cut up and take a middle third out of my patellar tendon. The hot dog. Right. Destroy yeah. my knee to try to fucking salvage parts. Mm-hmm. And like, uh, like, you know, and people are like, oh, the cadavers don't hold. I would rather have a uh, hundred ACL reconstructions with cadaver than go through that patellar tendon one fucking time. It but, was, but, but you don't want, you don't want cadaver either because that that's the problem. There's no, there's currently no great option because the cadavers, especially in young active people tear, tear way more. Why often. is that? Why is that? Because basically it's dead tissue and the tissue doesn't. So what, what you're taking is a tendon and hoping the body re-ligamentizes it into a ligament. Obviously tendon and ligaments are different. So think about this. Here's what happened. When you put that hot dog in there, basically, you know, this chunk of tendon, either from your patella tendon or your hamstrings tendons or, or uh, an allograft. They used, uh, for that 10-year-old, they didn't, um, I, I asked him, I'm like, what did you guys use for the graft? And they didn't do patellar tendon. They didn't do hamstring. They used uh, part of his IT band, which completely yeah. blew my mind because I'm like, dude, the fascia is all like, like that's like, uh, that's it, the nervous you're, system. You're, you're robbing, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. I, exactly. I, I, that, that's like, exactly what you're doing. I wouldn't have fixed the kid's ACL. I would have been like, I wouldn't have told him. I would have just say, Hey, uh, rehab it, go out there and just be your best. So, so let's, let's get to that point. So the point <laughs> of you went back and you, you didn't even know you tore your graph. So uh, that happens to a lot of people. We have to look at this. We have to go back to a, a mentor of mine, Frank Noyes, basically, he published back in the 80s. He said, there's a rule of thirds. Well, what is that? Basically, a third of people can go back to high-level sport and function very well without an ACL. So do you really have to rob Peter to pay Paul? Well, it depends. It depends on if you're in that third. Now, there's another third that can go back to activities of daily living without an ACL and do okay. And then there's a third that even with activities of daily living, they have instability and they have to be reconstructed. Mm -hmm. So here's a deal. When you consider this two thirds of people potentially don't have to have their ACL reconstructed. So in the United States, we say, Rob Peter to pay Paul, take whatever you can, uh, you know, take your hamstrings, which, as I just been saying for uh, most of this time, that's the absolutely crucial. Don't yeah. take the hamstrings, no. please. Yeah, take no, my I'm... wife. Don't take the <laughs> hamstrings. Well, well, we, we had uh, we had Dr. Keith Barr on the podcast uh, recently, and they are at the point where they're growing ACLs in the um, yeah, in the cloning, laboratory, cloning. like cloning and growing them. And, that's uh, the that's the future. That's that's where we have to go. It, we're still a while out. Yeah. But that's where we have to go. You don't want to take the hamstrings. And if you can, you don't want to take the patellar tendon. Cadaver grafts are fine in in 30, 40 somethings up. If you're not testing that knee all the time, if you have instability with activities of daily living and you just want to 
keep having those activities of daily living or maybe even playing like a recreational game of tennis, maybe pickleball and you're, and you're older and you're not playing basketball and soccer and testing that knee, a cadaver grass. Okay. But not, not in a young, really highly active athlete there. Your risk of a graft tear is much, much higher than the hamstrings or, or tendon. But, but Keith is right. Martha Murray at, at Boston Children's is right. We have to get another way to regrow because what, what happens is what they put this hunk, this, this hot dog of tendon in there, and then it has to re-ligamentize. So what they're using is basically the collagen matrix as a, as a scaffold for what, what happens is cells come in there, mesenchymal stem cells, they they take away the existing tissue and then build it back. And, and it re, the body tries to remodel it as a ligament. The problem is this takes time. It takes 12 to 24 months minimum in a hamstring, maybe even significantly more than that. So you're telling people, oh, you're going to be back in six, nine months. Dude, they were at, pushing at, me at three months. Like in uh, at three and- yeah, at and, three months, that is mush. So that is they were calling that, me a when malinger. You're... Yeah, they they were like, you know, you're uh, like, you know, all of a sudden somebody said malinger, and I'm like, it's been like five months. Like I, I tore it, and like this is in March, and I tore it in uh, like right around Thanksgiving, and like at yeah, the that, time, that, you know, that, like, that's so, when your that's when your ACL during the re-ligamentization process is actually at its weakest. That's just down to like the scaffold and just starting to re-strengthen itself. That's the worst you could do is push that thing at three months. Uh, this so is that's why the absolute. I, uh, I have this uh, distinct hatred for ATCs and for the medical <laughs> staff associated with right. uh, both college and football. Um, like, like the fucking. Uh, like I, 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 I would say I would say this maybe the old school. Let's say the old school ones because I've got some way too many great ATC friends to be uh, listening dude, to that. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I like I I call them ankle tapers and I fucking abuse them. Oh man, for, for no, the mere no, fact too... that yeah, I I dude, I've had many bad friends. Moments. Yeah, I'm like, I'm, and uh, we we have but, you know with with our coaches deal with our methodology. There's a lot of guys that are ATCs and I fucking curb stomp them as ankle tapers. I'm like, dude, eh, ankle taper, get out of here. Don't tell me about this shit. Well, so, you, you, you have to be careful because there are the old school ones. There are the one that uh, I won't mention any names or any schools, but there's a guy out there that, that uh, promotes himself to saying the reason our team is so good is I get my ACLs back in three months, which is ludicrous. Cause I'm telling you, you can't cheat mother nature. You can't rush biology this is what it i can tell you that's what it takes it takes minimum 12 months for that ligament to re-ligamentize so you can't tell me you can make whatever you're doing is iontophoresis or anything else is is making the acl re-ligamentize faster it's biology you can't rush it is uh is there any benefit like you were talking about the um uh, chondrocytes and mesochymal stem cells and some things like that you know uh, now this big deal with push with exomes i'm wondering about if uh you know because i know when i talked to dr hans who's uh, uh dr andrews had a regen i asked him kind of like on you know on traditional acls what are you doing and now they're doing you know uh um 
they're tapping the hip and taking out and spinning down stem cells and kind of doing all this kind of biologics to try to increase the healing. Have you uh, done any research or seen any effects of that being a positive? It, it's completely unknown at this point. There are those who do it. And basically the rationale is do no harm, right? And it's, it's not doing any harm. Do we know that it does any good? We do not know that at this point, but I do know several surgeons just because they know that the outcomes are so bad currently that they figure let's do whatever we can to try to improve that outcome. So there, there are a lot who do injections, whether it's PRP or mesenchymal stem cell, which is platelet rich plasma or anything to get healing cells around that graft to, to, for better healing because you know your kind of tear is that's what the surgeon doesn't want you know if if the if the if you have a contralateral tear which because usually what you're doing is you're off you're you're increasing the load on the opposite side it's not you don't really sense the knee joint too well because you don't don't have that ACL sensor anymore in there. It just doesn't feel right to you. But but because of that, you're still loading that joint and that ACL at a high level. But what we showed in several studies is you're way overloading the other side. That's why that other side. Now, that's devastating to the patient when you tear the contralateral side, but at least the surgeon can say, well, that wasn't my knee. But <laughs> yeah, well, when it, when it, when it is the graph side, it's devastating to everyone concerned. I mean, believe me, a, a surgeon sees that graft tear and they think, what in the world can I do? So they're doing everything they can to try to improve outcomes. We have no idea as of yet, whether I would say the early data says no difference, that it, it has no significant effect, but we're still early in that process. Doc, going back to that, the rule of thirds on, uh, you know, an athlete's or individual's ability to get on with either high-level sport, daily life, or without, uh, what, what are the factors that contribute to that? Is it random or is, are there it's, it's biological neuro, factors? It's, neuro, it's neuromotor control. It's basically your ability to recruit your musculature around your knee, like your hamstrings and glutes, to stabilize that joint to where you don't test the ACL. If the force doesn't get to the ACL, you don't have any problems, right? If you can stabilize that joint. So I'd say, here's the thing. Do good, focused, targeted rehab first. Now, that's that's the case whether you're going to have it reconstructed, whether you're not going to have it reconstructed, or whether you're wondering whether you should have it reconstructed. Go through a good three-month period of prehab or rehab and see if you're what's termed a coper. See if you can use your musculature well. Mm -hmm. I've got several friends. I can, so I, I belong to the ACL study group, which is basically the top ACL surgeons. It's about the 100 plus top ACL surgeons around the world. I can tell you these guys are friends of mine most of them were at one time very high level athletes and most of them are still very high level skiers so in our meetings we rotate between a beach place and then a snow place so people can ski 
These guys are very high level skiers on black diamonds. I know more, more than a handful. These are ACL surgeons who never had their ACL reconstructed and they function very, very well. They're copers. They can use the glutes, the hammies, the quads mm -hmm. to stabilize that joint and function very well as you did without an ACL. Again, about a third of people should be able to do that. So the, in the United States, we reconstruct everyone. We rob Peter to pay Paul, but like in socialized medicines, like in the Nordic countries, they don't. They start out with a, a trial of function first and rehab just to see. Because again, the, the start of that was trying to save money for their health, you know, socialized health care. But what it turns out to is, no, I'm not going to lie. Many people, when they go through that trial of function, find out, you know, at least a minimum of a third of them that they don't function without an ACL. And what surgeons worry about is they'll say is if you don't reconstruct, you're going to end up doing damage to your meniscus, to the shock absorbers in the joint. And there is some evidence for that. But there is at least that third that can go back to very high level sports without an ACL. So you need to consider that. And going through an ACL reconstruction, as we talked about, is not a walk through the park. Mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, for I imagine parents, as I am, I'm like, I have an eight month old daughter and I'm thinking like, okay, she's not going to tear ACL but, but, anytime but soon. But, but your insurance policy to try to protect your, you know, girl dad try to protect your daughter's ACL is to get them into a, a training system shameless plug early that promotes like a, a posterior dominant style of training that would help facilitate that neuromuscular um, control around the knee right I mean is that yeah so when she gets uh, when she gets right around the so she has very very little risk until she hits puberty so kids go. Yeah, so she's doing so she well, does 100 RDLs a day. What's today. kind of interesting, <laughs> uh, what's kind of interesting, and, and this is purely observational, and I sometimes think that, you know, observation uh, leads to to studies, but I've, I tended to notice that the girls that I saw that tear ACLs uh, naturally were had valgus knees. That girls that were slightly straight to a little bow-legged didn't seem to tear ACLs. Well, it's especially if they're mm -hmm. dynamically valgus, if they're doing it during, during sport. So those kids, the, the train wrecks, the ones that you're really, so there, there's two populations here. So we let, let's talk about pre-ACL and then post-ACL reconstruction. The, the train wrecks, the ones that don't control their trunk well. So they're when they're rebounding a basketball, they're moving all over the place. And then they have that dynamic valgus collapse in of their hip and knee. Those kids are definitely at risk. Then you go. So we've been publishing studies recently where uh, we've published this and other groups have shown exact same thing. There's basically two high risk groups after reconstruction. The first is that uh, train wreck that you see it, you know, you exactly a lot of that dynamic valgus, a lot of trunk movement, lack of body control. They're at risk of about a third of having another ACL injury. Now, the other one you have to worry about is you push, push, push there. They really want to get back. And they're, they're back maybe at that six-month time point, and they pass through all these 
return to sport criteria, which have very little reliability and almost no validity. And they go back and they tear again. And their risk is about a quarter of a second ACL tear. So the, the problem is, especially on the back end, after that first injury, you have two high risk groups that are very different from one another. So that's, that's really hard to predict at that level. And that's, that's where we're trying to go with ours using psychological parameters, using validated tools. So for example, we use what's called the ACL RSI, ACL return to sport index, which was developed by Kate Webster and Julie, Julian Feller down in Melbourne, Australia, to look at the psychology. And the psychology is actually a really good predictor of risk. If you're very fearful and anxious about returning, you have a significantly greater risk of tearing the ACL a second time. So you have to Believe it or not, being an old time power lifter, I never thought the brain was involved in anything, but it is. <laughs> it, it really is. And you, and you have to look at, at these psychological factors and, and prediction algorithms with specificity and sensitivity greater than 80%. So, so we have to use all the tools available from, from the head on down, head to trunk, core, hips, knee, and, and put together an algorithm that's both reliable and valid for predicting who's at risk so that we can then target our training toward them, look at those. But, but those neuromuscular imbalances, and I do agree with that statement, balance is key. And a lot of people say balance. What, what's that? So that means you're on a wobble board. I'm talking neuromuscular balance. And, and that's exactly right, because athletics is great. Athletics is great for participation. Athletics creates imbalances. So what you guys need to do as strength coaches is restore balance. Restore balance um, anterior to posterior. Restore balance side to side. Restore balance in motor control and muscle activation and restore balance between upper and lower and, and core to foot. And those, those, that restoration of balance is what you guys need to be doing. What's, what you're going to do is create better athletes and you're going to create safer athletes. Doc, is there any research to correlate like uh, high arches, flat foot, um, any type of like dysfunction within the feet and ACLs? Like connecting like, hey, this guy's got really flat foot and because of the flat foot, the arch collapse, which just allows for a valgus knee and, and hip to dump in and then they're more prone to ACLs. So it, it makes sense physiologically. We tried to do those studies and we couldn't find a significant effect. But when you think about it, it, there's some controversy on whether the tibia internally rotates the tear the ACL or externally rotates because what it looks like when athletes land, it very often looks like their foot is externally rotated, is flat footed, it's flat, and then you get that arch pronation, the arch collapses. Now, you do get that. However, what happens is with, with internal, with pronation, what you end up getting is internal rotation of the tibia, and that's what strains and tears the ACL. So mechanically, 
yes, that connection makes sense. Epidemiologically, we haven't been able to demonstrate that. There was there was one study by Bill Kramer's do, group. They did our predictive drop vertical jump test off, uh, you know, a foot high, 30 centimeter box and basically showed with a medial post-orthotic, they decreased that knee abduction moment, that abduction torque at the knee. But it's never been, we've never shown, we, in, in a couple of our epidemiologic studies, we measured arch height, and we couldn't see that as a predictor of ACL risk. Good. But it does make sense mechanically, because a flat foot or a collapsed arch internally rotates the tibia, which should strain the ACL. Yeah, and then you get that dynamic uh, uh, tibial torsion and some of the other problems. Um, interesting. Yeah, that dynamic valgus, yes. That little ditty and the sound of my smooth, sensual, yet strong voice means you're about halfway through our chat and you've earned yourself a little brain break brought to you by our friends at Train Heroic. And I know you're like, Callie, your voice is smooth, sensual, yet strong, but what does that have to do with Train Heroic? And the answer is it doesn't. But here's why we at Power Athlete think it's important that you're aware of what Train Heroic is capable of. Their whole jam is to empower you to train without limits. Sound familiar? That means that you can take your little gym business or side hustle and absolutely blow the fucking doors off of it. Their immersive training solutions allow you to train athletes from New York to Nicaragua. And FYI, if you consult a map, those places are really far from each other. Gym space is not an issue. Distance, not an issue. And scheduling, well, we already know that time is an illusion, but it's even more illusion-y with Train Heroic. With Train Heroic, you can provide an engaging, flexible, and affordable training experience for your people wherever they are on this flat earth. They provide everything you need to look like a pro, even if you're a complete Luke Summers, and transition into this brave new world of online training. The best part is that they give you a fortnight of free usage. That's two weeks for anyone not born in the 1700s. And when that wraps up, you can keep the party going for the price of a Chipotle burrito. But wait, there's more. A burrito without guac. And you pay only as your business gains grow. The whole crew uses Train Heroic and has done so for years. There's a reason we are taking the time to mention it. And it's not because they promised us a party barge or a suitcase full of collectible beanie babies, uh, baby tigers, or anything else that you deem to be extremely valuable. It's simply because we like them. We use them and we believe in what they can do for your business and your athletes. Power Athlete has grown by 50% for the last four years because of Train Heroic. And in the words of one of my old coaches, you can't argue with results. Head over to trainheroic.com, click on the free trial button in the upper right-hand corner and get started today. Now back to the show. question on communication you said you're you're diving in and helping out oz the aussie rules football team down there so we've had some experience trying to do switch them from endurance training to basically power explosive weightlifting and sprinting so we've had some pushback on old school coaches are you receiving any pushback from the athlete stakeholders and how are you managing that if so so this is a, a group of studies we're doing so uh, the group I mentioned in Melbourne, Julian Feller, Kate Webster, Julian is kind of the 
AFL surgeon to the stars, at least in the Melbourne area. He gets all the, uh, or many of the AFL, the, the stars come to him for surgery, like the kind of Jimmy Andrews of, of Oz. And, and uh, here's the problem with AFL. This is what happens at the knee joint. We've been talking what happens at the trunk and the core. What do they do in AFL? They climb up people's backs. They jump. <laughs> make a specky. And then someone's hitting them. And what happens? Their, their trunk is going lateral and they're landing down on one foot. Just because of AFL, Aussies have the highest incidence and prevalence of ACL injury of any country in, in the world. Aussie rules football because they're basically recapitulating that trunk injury mechanism, you know, mechanically and dynamically, they're at huge risk. Now, we've been looking at this problem, and I tried to get a paper published with Kate on this, but it was shot down because it's not politically correct. So Aussie rules football has an enormous, enormous risk of relative risk of ACL. It's like in the range of two per thousand hours, which is, is massive. It's a, it's a huge number. Female, they just started three years ago. They just started female Aussie rules football and Julian and Kate and I looked at each other and kind of shook our heads when they did that. And because as we know, females are at greater risk of an ACL. If you look at, we have three years of data now, Basically, the highest risk in the world already, male ACL injury, is about eight times higher than that in, in women. They're literally two to three ACLs a week during the women's ACLs, AFL. You <laughs> just call it the ACL. <laughs> the, the, a, the ACL AFL season. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so it's a big problem, and, they're, and they've got to bring that down. And They've got to be. And, and here's the problem. The AFL, as you guys know, is not the NFL. It's also an endurance sport. Yeah. So you have to be strong, powerful, but you got to keep running, man. It, it's not like, <laughs> you know, four second burst and commercial break. It's yeah. you got to keep going. So there is this trade off, but they they have to incorporate more and more and more the ACL prevention work, the power training, the, the Russian hamstrings, the Romanian deadlift, they, they have to power up that posterior chain. And even still, if you talk about eight times higher, you think about it, eight times higher than the highest level of any sport in the world, even if you can reduce that by 50% to two thirds, you're still somewhere four times to two times higher than the highest risk sport wow. in the world. So it, it's massively scary, but yes, they, they have to do everything they absolutely can do to create that greater neuromotor control and balance. Are, are, are there any injuries that you've ever um, observed or noticed or studied that kind of pre- uh, like pre-exist or pre-date uh, an ACL tear, like for example, chronic hamstring pulls, or um, you know, I was thinking like different like uh, um, injuries that people would have that would almost lend claim to say, hey, you know, this puts person at a greater risk for an ACL tear. Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and and we published a paper 
I just I just tweeted it out like three days ago. Actually, I've got a whole infographic on it. Uh, yes, patellofemoral. So what happens is when you have patellofemoral pain, you you start to lose sensation of the joint. Like we talked about, you know that you've got that sensor in the ACL. So even if you haven't lost that sensor itself, if you lose sensation around the joint due to low level chronic pain, you have greater risk of an ACL. So yeah, that, that was in that, in those Boone County longitudinal, that entire school system, county school system study, we demonstrated that if an ad, so the greatest risk factor, the, the best predictor is always prior injury. So if you tear your ACL, that's the best predictor of a future ACL injury. But what we found as a predecessor to that, if you have patellofemoral pain, you alter your ability to sense that joint, you alter your biomechanics and you become more imbalanced. Yes, you have a increased risk of an ACL. But PFP, patellofemoral pain syndrome, is a is actually a good predictor. We've had many kids, a significant number of kids who started out with patellofemoral pain and then go on to an ACL injury, especially young female athletes. Is that from like um, open growth plates like osteoslaughters uh, or is that like more patellar tendonitis? It, it's, it's different. It's basically um, underneath your, between your underside of your kneecap and your femur, you have pain and it's, it's usually to due to, well, there's, there's various theories, but one is that it's a, a biomechanical theory that when you're caving a lot as you're moving into dynamic valgus, what happens is so your patella sits yeah, out front of, of the femur and it runs into the, in the femoral groove. Yeah. And what happens is as this dives in, the patella rides out laterally. And then over time, you get this inflammation of the underlying, the cartilage that underlies the kneecap and overlies the the, the femoral condyle. And mm -hmm. then over time you, you get this, it's like a diffuse chronic pain in the joint. And again, that's what you sense rather than sensing in three dimensions, the position of the center of your knee where your ACL is. Uh, I have a pretty vivid memory of when I ruptured my patellar tendon and I looked down, it happened during the game. And when they cut my pants off, I looked and my kneecap was sitting like two inches to the right and two inches too high. And I remember when yes. they went in and they x-rayed it, you could see the, uh, uh, the patella groove, uh, like almost like the track that it went into in the x-ray. And I was thinking like, man, that's not supposed to be there. <laughs> no, when, when your patella, when you're, when you get some people naturally who say have very loose tendons will have what's called patella alta. So that's when the patella goes high and it, it rides above that. And they have patella dislocations yeah. regularly. You know, that's a, cause it doesn't sit during, during functional knee flexion angles in that groove, which holds it in place and keeps it on track. So yeah, those, those are scary. We had, uh, I'll never forget. I was in my office which used to be just off the lab and we were testing we you know we as you can say we we tested hundreds and thousands of kids and we were testing a kid and is and we have this exploder machine where we we our drop vertical jump test to make it athletic and to to bring the focus we have a ball 
a basketball set at their max vertical jump height, which we pre-tested. So they tested for max vertical jump. We set the ball at their max vertical jump, and then they use that as a as sort of a, a target as we're measuring, you know, dynamic valgus and all, all these foreign balances that I'm talking about. And and a relatively heavy parent decided to go over there and just jump up and rebound that basketball popped both of his quad tendons bilaterally. And I can oh. tell you that that hurts. <laughs> it probably sounded like a shotgun. Cause, um, I, 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 uh, when I ruptured my patellar tendon in Philly, uh, as I was laying there, I felt the pain and I kept like taking my hand and doing this. Cause I was looking for the blood. Like somebody had shot me from the third row. Cause it, <laughs> cause it, it sounded like a gunshot went off of my it, head. It's when a it popped. pop. Yes. Yeah. It's a pop. And, and did you hear a pop when your ACL ruptured? No. Um, no, very, uh, very, uh, very often most people hear a pop because what it there's there the the ligament is under tension and basically you're it, you're popping and releasing that tension. Yeah, I um I think the mechanism for mine was really pretty interesting. Uh, the week or two weeks before that, I had got uh, I, I was playing tackle. I went to cut a guy and he kneed me in the head and knocked me out. And then I came out, um, you know, in those days they were like, oh, you seem fine. Smelling salt, good to get back in the game. And then two weeks later I was running on a reverse and just slipped in the grass. And just like my knee just gave out on me. And mm-hmm. uh, that was, you know, really the beginning. So um, it was just really an interesting. And we had, uh, who do we have? D- Dustin Grooms out of Ohio yeah. University. So, Tim, he does cool research trying and he was an ATC with the Bengals. Trying to I know now. Dustin very well. Oh, yes. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, so we, we had him on the podcast. And um, ever since that moment when I took, because I got shot on the, or I took the shot right on my left side and I ended up tearing my right ACL, I started noticing just when guys would tear ACLs or guys would get hurt, I'd always like uh, started noticing that guys were usually taking a big shot or there was something where they got knocked unconscious or had some form of head trauma to the point where if I saw a guy get hit, I would tell him, be like, hey, man, you better watch out. Um, I've, over the years, I've seen people tear usually the chondrolaterals or um, so, chondrolateral sides. So you're absolutely right. We just published two papers in just the, the last year where we showed in a meta-analysis of all the existing literature, and then we used Mayo Clinic's REP, which is the Rochester Epidemiology Project, a big geographical uh, analysis. My, my student, April McPherson, demonstrated, well, she was lead author in both of those studies and the group when Melbourne was involved as well, that after you have a concussion, over the next two years, your risk of... Uh, a knee injury or an ACL injury increases by two to two and a half fold. So you're absolutely right so, on there. Uh, I observed this in the wild and it was funny when we had him on the podcast, he was more, I think, blown away by the fact that I had already made this observation. I mean, um, but I also, for me, I'm uh, big on patterns. Like I started noticing patterns on things and I would, you know, I'd see some guy take a big shot to the head and, uh, and it happened to me. I mean, literally two weeks later, I tear my ACL and I have this knee injury. And then I'd like, sure enough, like I saw guys get hurt and tear injuries. And I always be like, didn't he get knocked unconscious? Didn't he take a big shot? What side was it? And then, you know, they'd be like, why? And then, you know, and all of a sudden it just, you know, you see, you know, thousands of guys play and over the course of 10 years, you know, in the NFL, you see this and it just, there are certain things that become true. And when you mention to people like, ah, that's no, there's no correlation. And then you find out 10 years later that there was something to it. Oh, oh yeah, they're they're at, so it uh, going back to us as old power lifters. We we didn't think the brain was involved. It absolutely is. 
the brain, the brain injury, the psychology, and the whole neural system, the, the nerve endings in the ACL, they're all connected and you disrupt any part in that neural chain and that neural feedback loop and you've got problems that lead to future risk of future injury. Absolutely. So I've heard, I, this is probably not going to happen, but the NBA wants to come back July 1st. So we, I spoke last time on the lockout. So athletes coming back from NBA lockout and NFL lockout and just the injuries. So can we anticipate, can we just throw a flare up right now to help prevent injuries at that, that major league level in the NBA when they were off for three months and come back to full speed and basically play right into the playoffs? It's, it's a problem. Obviously, uh, load management is crucial. You go from low load, you know, low exposure to super high load, high exposure, your risk increases. So this happened. We published a paper right after the, the NFL lockout where we showed that Achilles tendons ruptures went through the roof after they came back quick and loaded them real fast into games. And actually, after we published that paper, I was a reporter was interviewing me and they'd had the end. The NBA lockout was the following, you know, basketball season. And someone said, could you extrapolate from what you found in the NFL onto the NBA? And I said, well, I hate to do it. But I can tell you, if they approach this the same way, they cram a bunch of practices and games in a short period of time. And man, ACLs went absolutely through the roof. So I'll I'll throw it out and speculate and conjecture again. Um, I'm not Nostradamus, but I can tell you that uh, that. Yes, if they do the same thing again, where they're off for an extended period and bring them back fast and ramp them up and cram a bunch of games and practice in a short period of time, injury risk is going to increase. Is uh, um, I always wondered this, and you're actually the perfect person for it. Um, is there like a hierarchy if you were to say, okay, uh, of all like the lower limbs, like a ruptured Achilles, ruptured patellar tendon, ACL, you know, kind of like all these kind of terrible lower leg or lower leg injuries. Is there like a hierarchy between like if you had to select one, what's the first one you would select? Is like of like being able to recover, yeah, like play yeah, recover from. Because when I ruptured my patellar tendon, as I was laying there in the um, in the training room, the doctor came over and told me, uh, "We've never had anybody ever come back from this injury." And then he walked away, and I remember like, "Oh fuck!" <laughs> like. You know, and um, it took me almost, uh, um, you know, 10 months, 11 months to the day to, to be able to come back. And I always thought like, man, like, is there is there one that you would want more than others? Because I've saw guys, um, I saw a hell of a deal where guys would rupture Achilles tendons. And then because the the uh, the rehab was so touchy, like either the tendon would get stretched and become a long lever and they would lose power or it gets so tight that they really couldn't generate force. Yeah, it's they're different, you know, tendons, ligaments. I, I can tell you from a perspective of time lost to sport, the ACL in, in the NFL is the biggest reason for time lost to sport, to time lost participation. So that's, you know, that's a numbers game. It's a looking at how many games and practices that they miss. And, and the ACL is number one there. 
Um, but these other ones like Achilles tendons are more rare. And so maybe on an individual basis, Achilles tendons, uh, any kind of tendon rupture can be, I mean, it can, it can be career ending. Yeah. Ligament injuries can be career ending as well. So there's no good one to have. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they all suck. And, uh, and I've had, I have not the knock on wood, uh, you know, torn, um, uh, an Achilles tendon, but also like, I, I don't know, I've, I've always been, uh, really big on like making sure my feet were strong and just making sure I have good range of motion and dorsiflexion and, like that was something, you know, like always squatting heavy, like trying to get as much, uh, you know, forward shin angle as I can to be able to put the tendon on, or the Achilles under load. So like, it just, I, it, it just felt like, um, like certain athletes or certain people maybe within their training, like tended to bias more injuries. And I, it just kind of, I think you could almost put people in some silos with that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That, that hasn't been done that, that it's, there's too much variability between people and for those injuries to really be able to categorize that. Well, got text. So Tim, when you push for prevention, so speak to coaches, parents that have their kids that haven't experienced an injury yet, what are the things that you talk to them, the tools to provide them that is prevention from your eyes? You don't sell it as prevention. You sell it as prevention performance that's what that's what the parents the kids and it now there are the mothers want prevention uh, some do but most could you have to talk people into prevention that's why instead shoot they'll pay for performance right you have to talk you have you have to talk them into it and give it away free if it's prevention so what you do is you talk performance. We can make your kid a better athlete. I can make your kid jump higher. I can make your kid stronger. I can make your kid faster. We can do all this. We can make them a better athlete. And then, oh, and by the way, you're going to reduce your risk of injury at the same time. So that's, it's just prevention, which we don't really even use that word anymore because prevention indicates that you actually are Nostradamus and you can predict something from happening in order to prevent it. What, what we look at is reduction. We're looking at injury risk reduction is what we're after, but you use that as sort of a side effect of performance training. Otherwise, it's just not sexy to enough people. Well, has prevention ever been sexy? Like, as you're saying this, I'm thinking like, uh, think about all the things that we've tried to prevent that end up coming to fruition. I mean, oh, come, from yeah. like teen pregnancy to lung cancer and this, like anything that they label with, with prevention usually fails utterly. How many, how many of you like me get yelled at by the dentist every time you go in there when he talks up his, you know, whole prevention regime and flossing your teeth two times a day. It's a great thing to do. It's not fun. It's not sexy. Most people don't do it. Now, you know, if the, if the guy told me, Hey, it's going to make you a hell of a lot better looking then then I might try it. But <laughs> I know that's not, not going to happen. Actually, the one that really sold me on all like that uh, tooth hygiene stuff and brushing my teeth and flossing and doing all that was uh, when I read those studies where they found bacteria in the mouth, like within the heart disease. And right. that they found that you're like exactly. all, you're... all of these organ failures, heart disease, you know, heart attacks, like all these like 80 percent of these catastrophic things. 
uh, they found bacteria from the mouth. And uh, at that point, I was like, I'm going to mouthwash with hydrogen peroxide every day and brush my teeth two to three times a day. And then I went to yep. the dentist. I uh, hadn't gone for like a year. And I went in there and the lady took the little scraper, like looked around, was like, you're good. I'm like, oh, thank yeah. God. So like, yeah. I, I think some things like that, like the prevention part, but if they can tie it to something practical, at least for me, where I'm like, so wait a minute, like, uh, you know, cause what is it? It's, um, like heart disease and heart attacks are a major killer of men over the age of 50. I mean, so, so that that's where prevention works. So when the people call me is for example, Galesburg, Illinois, they had had four or five of their starting five tore their ACLs over a season. And the people in this relatively small town were like, you know, they were not happy with the coach and everything that was going on. So they, they bring me in. We, we worked with them. We set them up with a program like the next season. uh, They didn't have any ACLs the following season. They didn't have any, any ACLs and they won a state championship. Now, what did the people really care about? They, they cared about winning the state championship not having the no ACLs, but that's what you hope for. And, and we've been able to demonstrate that again and again. We've had very good luck with teams. If they institute the training, they see that the, the parents, the coaches see it in their body movement, their body control, their greater athleticism. And so their p- performance ramps up and, and, and then they, then they get behind it. You're kind of the uh, um, the Stu McGill of ACLs in the NFL. Like all of a sudden there was like a rash I, of back injuries, and next thing they're like, "Get us Stu McGill!" You know, and he. You know, you're, you're so funny that that <laughs> Stu's a friend of mine, and this group. Of, I, I spoke to a huge group of chiropractors in Chicago, and Stu spoke before me, and then I spoke. He spoke in the morning. I spoke in the afternoon, and the. I was introed as the Stu McGill of ACLs. <laughs> uh, Stu, Stu's been on our podcast a few times, and uh, we've always yeah. had a really good, uh, like, interesting relationship. Just such a, mm-hmm. such an interesting guy. But I remember I, I never had any back injuries. But I used to hear, like, so-and-so would hurt their back, and, like, the, you know, they'd whisper, and they'd be like, ooh, Stu McGill. And, like, mm-hmm. so I had, I had heard this name for years, but I just thought he was, like, the Kraken or, or you know, or, uh, um, I don't know, like, some, some mythical creature the that wolf. they yeah that they send <laughs> people out when their backs are fucked up. And so yeah. when uh, I ended up getting out, and um, we, we connected and everything, and I'm like, man, I've heard your name for years. And he's like, in good ways? I'm like, no, it usually related to, like, fat uh, NFL players that hurt their backs. And he's like, hmm. Yeah. So no, he, uh, great. But yeah, as you were sitting here, I'm like, man, it's probably the same thing. Like, uh, you know, some rash of injuries or something happens to a, you know, high level person and they're like, bring in the wolf. That's, that's what happens. That's when they care about protect prevention slash reduction. Then they care about it. But yeah. I always considered Stu McGill, the the Tim Hewitt of backs. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> me too. Yeah. You can tell me. Hey, you Stu. Yeah. You can tell Stu you heard that on Power Athlete Radio. Uh, yeah. I also told Stu you better never shave that mustache or nobody's going to know it's him. Yeah, I know. I can't imagine what he'd look like. Can you? I mean, that's that's his website. That's like his logo. Is his mustache? <laughs> yeah, I know. You know? Oh, it's, it's, oh yeah. It's kind of egregious. No, we, like, I like you see. We've it, got it. Like, we've got a little of that going too. Yeah. It's <laughs> uh, funny. Tim, are you still? training and finding a way and all this to just keep banging weights. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm still having a blast training. Actually. I, I always, um, what I try to do is find somebody new and different and, and just train with them, you know, 
keep it exciting. I, my, my latest training partner was, is a, you know, young 23 year old guy named Alex, who's very knowledgeable, just reads everything, you know, and he, he asked, well, do you want to do this? I go, no, we're going to do your workouts. I'm not even going to talk. Let's just, let's just do it. And it, it's great, you know, and everybody there's, there's lots of, you know, ideas I've been, well, as of this speaking again, I don't want to date myself. I've been doing it 50 years. Yeah. <laughs> so no, I, I, I love it, you know, and, uh, I, I keep after it and keep it fresh. But that's what I do. I find a young person as a training partner, who's just going to kick my butt and go after it. And I'm, I'm not, are you sure what you, you want to take this workout? No, no, just we'll, we'll go. No, I'll, I'll tweak it after, you know, I'll tweak it myself, but I'm still getting after it after all this time. I love nice. it. It's fun. Nice. So what's, what's a training session looking like these days with, with Alex? Uh, shifted very much, uh, body weight. So we do, um, Oh, hang stuff, TRX, um, do a lot of band, do a ton of tons of kettlebells. Uh, it's, it's not a lot of Olympic lifting anymore. Mm -hmm. My shoulders are bone to bone on both sides. So, you know, I used to be a big bench presser and, you know, I still do, but more with more with kettlebells and dumbbells and, and less, you know, heavy weights. Um, I do as much body weight as I can and then just move up difficulty level with body weight. Mm -hmm. Nice. Cool. Yeah. Just keep moving. Still having fun. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think, um, when I retired from the NFL, people are like, Oh, are you going to stop lifting weights? I'm like, no, that's when the wheels fall off. As yeah. long as I keep training, like they're going to call me and I might have to go to a training camp. Like I'll be fine. Uh, what I'm worried about is all of a sudden the complacency and then, cause I, I, I still run into guys that I played with and I'm like, Ooh, you stopped training. doesn't look good on you. And they're like, no, yeah. I'm like, yeah. Like once you, once you stop, it's so hard to get going again. You got to continue to stay in the fight. It is. You just keep it. It is. It's just a, it's a lifestyle and it will always be my lifestyle no matter what. Yeah. Beautiful. It's part of me. Nice. You got anything else text? We good? Yeah, okay. we're solid. Thank you. You got anything else? Good anything deal. else for us? Um, any no, new I, studies or books or anything that you want us to push for you? Well, we we've got a lot coming out. Uh, a lot of our work is based on. Uh, I'm actually writing a book right now that I'm working on, and it's going to be. It's going to be MythBusters of sports medicine and ACL. So that's Ooh, what they, there are. Wait. There are so many myths out there that I I'm going to bust in this book. So it it's to come. Yes. Can you uh, make sure to throw a curb stomp on the uh, the myth of taping ankles, which <laughs> I think is absolute bullshit that they would cast our ankles. And then all of a sudden, 20 minutes later, I have to squirt some water on it, it loosened up. And then, like, I, I could never understand that one. So go after that one for me. We, 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 can, we can address the, the myth of ankle taping. Yes, we can. Awesome. <laughs> so. Tim, we'll have to get you back on when it's when it's. Yeah, ready. no, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'll, I'll be one of your first purchases. Thank you. Anytime. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I think, it'll, uh, I, I think it'll smack some people in the face a bit. So, so Good. It's always, it. it's always fun just to give somebody that quick wake up. Shake <laughs> nice. it up, baby. 
Well, Tim, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. And thank you, Power Athlete Nation, for uh, tuning into another episode of the Premier Podcast in Strength and Conditioning. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Dr. Tim Hewitt's research is not hard to find and is available through the Mayo Clinic site and PubMed. You can follow him on social things with the handle at Hewitt, the number one, and then Tim. And has all this ACL talk got you jazzed on taking a proactive approach to preventing your athletes from catastrophic injury? Well, I sure as shit hope so. Head over to academy.powerathletehq.com and look for the recently launched ACL Injury Prevention Course. This is a course for parents, for sport coaches, strength coaches, sports medicine professionals, and anyone that has a stake in an athlete's performance and long-term career. It's time to expand your understanding of movement, strength programming, and change the stigma on injury prevention. Until next time, bye!